0: morning. How are you all doing today? Awesome. That is so great to hear. I want to open with saying welcome to all of you. If you're joining us here for the first time here in our sanctuary, or if you're joining us online, uh, welcome. We're so glad you're here to worship with us this morning at Hosanna Christian Fellowship. I am Pastor Nathan and today we are going to be continuing our study in the book of Revelation and we're going to be celebrating the baptism of a couple of our family members here who are today making a public profession of what Jesus has done in saving their souls. And so we're very excited about that. We will be doing the baptism at the tail end of the service and so I encourage all of you to, to just uh, hang out with us. You know, baptism it's a public profession of faith. That's why we do it in observance uh, to um, the um, ordinances that we have here in the church, baptism and communion being the two that we, we celebrate here and observe at Hosanna. And so in order for a public profession to be public, there needs to be a public to observe and so you guys are the public as well as those of you joining online and we will have some instructions about um, where to stand and where not to stand and, and where to be so that the cameras can see the baptism for those watching at home and whatnot but for now um, let's open up here like I said this morning we're gonna be in Revelation chapter 5 looking at what is or what will be depending on how you look at it the greatest real estate transaction in all of history If you know anything about real estate or if you've ever been involved in real estate, one of the great truths of real estate that any good agent will tell you is that it's all about location, location, location. You know, many uh, consider real estate a great way to kind of get ahead or to generate wealth or to, you know, start to step into the world of financial independence. And, and even today, real estate is still considered a great investment by many. And so over the years, you know, people have always talked about, you know, buy a home because it's your greatest as- asset. And uh, For many, it's really an asset for the bank. It's a liability for you because you're paying the mortgage, but we won't get into all that um, But people look to buying homes and in the past, you know, uh, it was it was a big thing nowadays It's it's quite a bit harder for a lot of people especially young folks But after buying a home people would then go "Ooh, what about multiple homes? And they would look to invest into other real estate so they could generate positive cash flow through those things Others got into house flipping and of course that became a big hit on reality TV TV as we watched people flip homes and, and use that as a way to, to invest. But Mark Twain said something once that I thought was very telling. He said, "Buy land. They're not making it anymore." And so many have found their, their financial aspirations fulfilled through, through purchasing property, land, not, not so much homes and stuff, but land that initially looked worthless, you know. And I know many of us over the years may have been approached by people with, you know, these great real estate deals, you know, let me sell you land on the moon because we're going to colonize it one day, and, you know, and stuff like that. But um, there have been many people prosper from buying land that was once um, appearing to be worthless, and that land ended up being valuable as growth and development and things took place, you know, or something was valuable found on that land, such as oil or precious metals or gems or something like that. And like I said, there's many examples of, of incredible real estate deals in history. You know, a man named Walt Disney once purchased property 25 miles from civilization where only cows and a few shacks existed and that thought, I'm going to build a theme park here. We now call that the city of Anaheim. The island of Manhattan was purchased by a man named Peter Minuet, who is the general director of the Dutch colony of New Netherlands, and he bought the entire island for what is today the equivalent of $24. And then, of course, if you remember from history class, the Louisiana Purchase. Right, All of the land uh, west of the Mississippi River, about 800,000 square miles purchased by Thomas Jefferson from Napoleon for $15 million in 1803. Pretty substantial uh, investments there. But the greatest real estate deal ever, ever, that ever will be, still maybe in the future, depending on how you look at Revelation, is found here in Revelation chapter 5. And the location at stake is earth. The entire planet, a place created by God, a place belonging to God, unique in all the universe, a very privileged and special planet, given over to mankind's dominion as a place of perfect paradise and fellowship, and then a place that was forfeited by man and given over to Satan by mankind's disobedience in the garden. But thankfully, God had a plan to buy it all back. He had a plan to redeem all of it. And what's really cool is it wasn't because of the land itself. It was because of what the land contained, the treasure within. And that treasure was you, and that treasure was me. So we're going to see this morning really the extent that Jesus will go to redeem that which is his, that which he loves so dearly. But first, we're going to spend some time in worship to praise his holy name because he is worthy. And so if you all join me in prayer. Father God, we love you so much. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here this morning as your church. Lord, we're especially excited to be able to celebrate today with those that are getting baptized. But Lord, ultimately, all of this is about glorifying your name, God. And as we're studying in Revelation, Lord, we are in these chapters where we're getting a a glimpse of what's taking place in your throne room, Lord. Where We're able to see what John saw, Lord, as he stands there right in your glorious presence, God. And so, Lord, we want your glory to just be a part of everything we are and everything we do and to just from us, God, that people that don't know you would come to know you and the joy of salvation that is in the glory of who you are. And so, God, today as we look at your, your heart, really, we see the lengths that you will go to redeem us, God, that we would be encouraged of how much you love us, how dear we are to you as your children, God. And Lord, for anybody hearing this that doesn't yet know you as their Lord and Master, that doesn't yet know you as as their Father in Heaven, God, that they would even get a glimpse of how much you love them and that they would call out to you for salvation, Lord, today. But God, we thank you, Lord, for everything, and we thank you, Lord, for redeeming us and redeeming all of creation from the curse that we brought upon it. Lord, may we be encouraged by you today. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we are in Revelation chapter five, looking at verses one through eight. And as we've been studying at this point in the book of Revelation, um, a lot has taken place. Jesus has revealed himself to John the apostle in his glorified state. John was in the spirit on the Lord's day and God, Jesus himself, revealed himself to John. Revealed himself, himself as king, as high priest, as God Almighty, calling himself the Alpha and Omega, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. And then he told John, hey, I'm going to reveal some things to you, and so I want you to record what you're seeing I want you to record the the stuff I'm going to tell you about the churches. And I want you to record what is to come after that time. And so we saw Jesus speak to the seven churches of Revelation as we went through chapters two and three. And we saw what he had to say to what was literally seven churches of the time that existed. But those churches also representing the church of all time, including us today. And we saw in those seven things that there's seven specific kind of foundational issues that Jesus is really concerned about in our lives as Christians and our existence as the body of Christ because out of those seven challenges that we have, growing cold in our love and getting uh, uh, theologically dogmatic, getting uh, overwhelmed by persecution, uh, commingling secular things into our faith, those foundational things can lead to so many other compromises in the church. And so we saw what he had to say to. To the church and of course what we mean by the church is his people those that are saved and adopted into his family and then in chapter 4 we saw John which I believe representing the church was caught up into heaven into the very throne room of God where he saw something just amazing where he saw what was taking place there. And not only did he see the glory of God there in the throne room, but he also saw from whence the judgment of God will pour out, the very throne itself, as he heard the thunderings and the rumblings. And so, first we saw there that John was met by the presence of God in his fullness on his throne, emanating his glory and those rumblings as I just talked about, and all of it surrounded by the worship of his creations and his people. And so here in chapter five, we're continuing that experience of John to see what John saw. And we're capturing the transaction that I believe needed to take place to allow or to make way for God to take ownership again of what belongs to him and to cleanse it from what is not his. And so we read in Revelation chapter five, verse one, he said, then I saw In the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to even look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne." the greatest real estate transaction in history, and I'll explain why I believe that. But you'll notice there in verses one and two, our attention is drawn to a very specific detail, something that is being handed over there, and it's drawn to this scroll. A scroll, it tells us, that is sealed with seals, and has writing on both the front and back, very specific details there. It's a scroll, I believe, that represents a transaction taking place, but a transaction that has a problem, and the problem with the transaction is that there was none found worthy to open the scroll. Now this scroll has got to be something incredibly important because we see it in the right hand of God, right? It's in the right hand of God, and biblically the right hand is always symbolic throughout scripture of power, of authority. Of possession of ownership this is what the right hand represents and so this scroll is in the right hand of God the place of authority and power and everything so it's got to be something incredibly important and in that hand we see it's not just a sealed scroll but it specifically tells us it's sealed with seven seals and you'll remember that that number seven biblically is symbolic of completeness or wholeness throughout scripture and so we see this theme of seven come up over and over again but the scroll that is sealed with seven seals is important. Before there was paper books, before there was Kindles and digital books limited only by digital storage, everything was written on scrolls. And scrolls were just a long sheet of parchment that was rolled up from end to end and this is how writing was written down. And if you had to write something that was very long, well then that sheet of paper would also be very, very long. And so you couldn't just flip to or tap to a table of contents to get to any page you wanted within these scrolls. You would have to unroll and unroll and unroll if you wanted to get to like chapter 10 or whatever was written there. Now seals at the time on these types of writings were used to do a couple things. One, they were used to control the flow of reading the content. So what would happen is the scribe would write a little bit and then he would roll it up and they would seal it on the edge. And then he would continue to write and then roll it up again and seal it on the edge. And that was kind of like the table of contents of the day. So as you were unrolling the scroll to read its contents, you would have to stop at certain points and then break the seal to continue reading through the scroll. Also, uh, seals were used to make sure that only authorized persons could read the contents of the scroll. And so they were typically sealed with some type of wax. There was a string wrapped around and then wax dropped on it and then some type of seal in there. And typically what would happen is only a person with that seal could break open the wax seal to read what was in. Now, a document was um, sealed up in many different ways, but often the greater the importance of the document, the greater the number of seals were found on the document itself. And so here we see a scroll with seven seals. Now, that could be a reference to um, uh, what was Roman law during the day. During, During that time, if you were writing a last will and testament, Roman law required that that last will and testament be sealed with seven seals, and historically, we know that Emperor Vespasian and Caesar Augustus both had wills that had seven seals sealing them up because the contents were so important. Now, there are a few ideas on what the contents of this scroll, this very important scroll, are. But I do want to point out something uh, right off the top. It doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us what the contents of the scroll is. So um, I don't think there should be arguments or divisions over speculations on what the scroll contains. Can we all agree on that? Okay. sometimes people are like, this is what's in the scroll, and this is what's in the scroll, and it doesn't tell us. So we can't fight over what's in it. However, we can think about it and look at some biblical examples to deduce what it could be. But again, with those seven seals representing completeness, whatever the scroll does contain, its contents are complete. Its contents are full. It's a full recording of of whatever it was meant to convey in there. And so, like I said, there's a handful of ideas on what this scroll contains. Some believe that, according to the Roman law example I just gave, that it was God's last will and testament. It was His leaving behind everything um, on His passing problem with that I think is God didn't pass all right Um, God died but then he came back to life okay and so um, but some see that it's his last will and testament and they go see because Roman wills had seven seals and therefore there's a connection some see, uh, um, speculate that the contents of this scroll um, have to do with future judgment because the breaking of each one of these seven seals is what the rest of Revelation starts to get into as we have the seven seals of judgment that are broken. And so each one of those seven seals comes with the, the horsemen of the apocalypse coming and so on and so forth. And so some go, this, con- this scroll contains a complete written history of the future because why? God sees the future and the past all at the same time. He is outside of time, and so it is a written history of the future, including judgment and tribulation, and then it's given over to Jesus because Jesus is the only one with the authority to execute judgment on all of creation and mankind. Now, this does have a possible connection with Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, where um, Ezekiel is, is on a mission to, to rebellious Israel, and in Ezekiel 2, he says, so I looked... And I saw a hand reaching out to me, and there was written, a written scroll on it. When he unrolled it before me, it was written on the front and the back. Words of lamentation, mourning, and woe were written on it. So there could be a connection to that. It's a scroll of judgment. Um, some think that it's the actual book of life that is referenced later on in Revelation, where it is a complete record of the names of the redeemed. And so that is what is being handed over. But some think it's uh, the title deed to the earth the title deed to the earth, which is very interesting because that does align with a lot biblically. Now, um, like I said, it, it could be all four. Okay, (laughs) it could be all four and I'm not here to, to necessarily be dogmatic, but today I want to examine the title deed concept because there is a connection to the Old Testament that is very, very interesting and encouraging to us as Christians. So to start out with the context of what we're reading and really the context of most of the Bible, we have to understand isn't secular. The context isn't Roman. The context is Jewish, right? Especially the Old Testament. It's the history of the Jewish people. And then as we get into the New Testament, we have the church being born out of the um, synagogues and out of the Jewish culture. And as Gentiles were then grafted into that, there's a very Jewish context to everything. And so many of the readers of Revelation in the early church. Uh, were Jewish or had a Jewish background or very familiar with a Jewish context of um, faith and coming from Judaism. And so instead of thinking about Roman laws regarding wills reading Revelation, I think it was likely that they thought of something else first due to their immediate faith context. Now, in those days, scrolls were written on papyrus, which was the material of the day. They didn't have modern paper. And so papyrus was very smooth on one side and very coarse on the back side. And so typically, you would only write on the smooth side of the papyrus. Um, Here, we have a scroll where it says it's written on both sides. Now, if you study Jewish history at all, And if you're not interested in that, I did it for you. Um, There's numerous examples of a certain type of document that specifically is known to regularly have writing on both sides of the papyrus, and it happens to be a document that is typically sealed with seven seals. Guess which type of document that is in the Jewish culture? A title deed to a piece of property. And so I believe the readers in the early church would likely... Um, be immediately thinking of a, a real estate transaction as they were seeing this scroll with writing on both sides in these seven seals. Um, so basically how a real estate transaction happened in, in ancient times is when you would purchase a property, there would be two deeds drafted up. And if the owner of the property ever sold the property or lost the property or defaulted or forfeited the property, the land somehow, what would happen is one deed would be kept in storage with the new owner. So the new owner would get the deed, they would then buy it or they, they got it, like I said, if it was forfeited, and they would keep that deed and then the other deed would stay with the previous owner. This was according to Jewish land laws. And the background of all this is that every Jewish person, every family, every tribe, they were given an allotment of land from God in the promised land. And God had promised that there's really no way for you to ever permanently lose that land, but there was still allowance for those times where maybe you couldn't afford to keep it anymore, or you had to sell it because you fell into financial hardship or something. And so anyways, there would be these two deeds, and what existed in Jewish law was a way for you to get your land back if you lost it for some reason. And the way you would get it back is if you could fulfill all the requirements of what was called the redemption clause. This is what existed in Jewish land transactions. So often on these deeds that were a part of this process, the inside of the deed would would have all the legal details of the title of the property, but on the outside of the deed would be written the conditions to get the land back if you wanted to purchase it back. So if you sold it, if you lost it, if you forfeited it, on the outside of that deed would be the conditions to get it back. And then that deed would be rolled up, that scroll would be rolled up and sealed with seven seals only to be broken and open and reclaimed by the one who fulfilled the redemption clause. Now, um, so the whole idea was there is that the original owner could go back and rightfully reclaim what belonged to them in the beginning. But if they... The original owner was unable to reclaim the land. Jewish law allowed for a relative or a family member to then fulfill the conditions of the redemption clause, and that person was called the kinsman redeemer. The Hebrew word is goel. Now, this idea of a kinsman redeemer, we have examples of this in the Old Testament, and this is why I wanted to look at this title deed concept because it ties back to this idea of kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer, according to Jewish law, in order to buy back the land on behalf of the family member that that originally owned it, they had to meet three conditions. The kinsman redeemer had to be able to prove that they were legally family. It couldn't just be a friend. It couldn't just be someone claiming to be family. They had to be able to legally prove that they were family. They had to be able to actually fulfill the conditions which means if the conditions were to pay off a debt, they had to be able to financially pay off the debt. If the conditions were whatever, they, they had to be able to do it. And then they had to be willing. The kinsman redeemer could not be coerced or forced into buying back the land on behalf of someone else. They had to be willing to do that. And so... Examples of this kinsman-redeemer concept in Scripture, obviously in the book of Ruth, if you've ever read or studied the book of Ruth, you're familiar with that. But quick synopsis, there was a woman named Naomi who was married to a man named Elimelech, and they originally lived in Bethlehem. And then famine came upon the land. They had to leave, and so they likely sold their land, or they got rid of it somehow to get the money for a trip that took them over to Moab. And so they moved to Moab to start over. As the story goes on, sadly, we find that Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi a widow and leaving her without any type of covering or or protector. And then her two sons, who had since married to two Moabite women, also died. And so now you have Naomi and her two stepdaughters without husbands, without money, and in a very, very difficult situation for the day. Because in those days, women didn't have any rights, they couldn't own property, they, they, everything was dependent on the family name and their husbands. And so it was a different time. But so these three women were now left in a very difficult situation. And then Ruth goes on to tell us that, that Naomi, um, possibly because of the famine being over or subsiding, they decide to return to Bethlehem. And of her two daughters, uh, or stepdaughters, Ruth is the only one that ultimately goes back with her. And so they end up back in Bethlehem, but they have no land. They have no ownership. They have no money because, again, that land had been lost somehow um, as they left. So Ruth starts working in the field of this guy named Boaz just to get the leftovers so that they had food to eat. And she finds out that the owner of the land, Boaz, he is related to Naomi's former husband who had passed. Well, this is wonderful, right? Because he's a relative, he could buy back the family land so that Naomi and her family could be back on it. Of course, if he was willing because, well, he was related, that could be proved. It records for us that he was rich, so he was able to buy it back. So would he be willing? And then as the story goes on, to just uh, recap it real quick, yeah, he buys back the land and marries Ruth, kinsman redeemer. In Jeremiah chapter 32, we find Jeremiah the prophet in prison, and God speaks to him and says, hey, you're going to have a relative coming to you that wants you to buy back some land, and he can't, and so he wants you to act as the kinsman redeemer. Because he lost the right, and so you're the one that can fulfill the right to redemption. And so, um, you know, Jeremiah had already predicted predicted that Babylon was going to take all the land captive, but he buys the land anyways, because 70 years later, the land would be returned to the people, and so he signs the deed and seals the deed and all of that. So... Um, But the idea is that this kinsman-redeemer picture we see in the Old Testament, I believe, is what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 5. So the concept is here in Revelation 5, Jesus is the only one worthy to take the scroll, to break the seals, to open it. He fits the kinsman-redeemer concept very well. It seems to be that the concept of the scroll is all of creation, specifically earth. We see that in verses three and four. Nobody in the earth was able to. Nobody under the earth, above the earth, around the earth, thinking of the earth, looking like the earth, right? He's very clear. Nobody on this planet was able, qualified, to buy back what was originally belonging to God and then given to mankind to have dominion over. So that title deed to the earth that God created the earth that he sustains, the earth that he maintains, the earth that he gave dominion over to man, the earth that man then traded for a lie to get a bite of the fruit, giving it over to Satan, it's the Lamb of God, the only one who can step forward to fulfill the redemption clause. And so, back in Revelation 5:2, it says, I, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look in it. And I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Now, you might have a question at this point. At least I did. Uh, why would God, the creator and the maintainer of earth, need to redeem what's already his, right? He, he, he owns it, right? Well, I've mentioned that a couple times, but I want to walk through the concept here. You know, back in Genesis, we see God giving dominion of the earth over to Adam. Adam disobeyed God, and when he did, Scripture tells us that all of creation was affected, death and decay arrived, um, sin entered the world, and therefore creation was cursed. Effectively, he traded dominion of the earth, dominion over this perfect creation, this perfect paradise, traded perfect fellowship with God for the knowledge of good and evil. And in disobeying God, man let sin into his heart. It affected everything around them. We read that God then cursed the ground, cursed the earth due to the disobedience of man. And Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. And so sin came down through all of the genetics of mankind and we're all born sinners, right? Right? So when one man sinned, one man disobeyed God, his dominion over creation was forfeited. It was given up. It was given over. It was traded to Satan for this lie that you will be like God. And then the curse of sin and death entered creation, staining it and corrupting it. And so now Satan had dominion over the earth. He had what I will call administrative control, okay? Scripture calls him the God of this world, Indicating his authority over this creation. And we see that again when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. You guys remember that? It tells us there that when he was in the wilderness, Satan took him up onto a high mountain. And Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And what did he say? Worship me, and I will give this to all of you. Satan had temporary ownership. And he was using it as a temptation to say, "Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to buy it back. You don't need to shed your blood. You don't need to redeem it. Just just worship me, and I'll give it to you because it's mine to give." And so again, we see that picture of Adam and Eve through their sin, giving it over to Satan simply for a bite of the fruit." And so in Romans 8 verses 19 through 20, it tells us, "For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. You see, before sin entered the world, before we gave it over to the dominion of Satan and his gross death and decay, everything was perfect. Nothing died. It was a perfect paradise. But then we said, you know what? We want to be like God. And then death entered in. And so this glorious, perfect thing that God created, mankind and the place for mankind to dwell, started to rot away and die, including man himself. And so that brings us back to the question of verse 2, who is worthy to buy it back then? If man gave it away, who's worthy to buy it back? Who's worthy to break those seals? Who's worthy to open the scroll? Who's worthy to reclaim and redeem the earth from the curse of its current landlord? Who? Well, it's Jesus. Now, it's interesting there. You'll notice he says, who is worthy, not who is willing. Who is worthy. That word worthy means who has the true right, who has the true authority, who has the true ability to redeem and buy this back. Who? has the true ability, power, willingness, all of that. There's been many who throughout the history of man have been willing to claim rulership of the earth. Many, right? You go back through history and you think of people like Alexander the Great, who at the age of 31 wept in Babylon because he thought there's no more lands to conquer. I rule the whole earth. <laughs> Little did he know, right? Right? in modern history we have people like hitler who thought yeah he's gonna i'm gonna rule the whole earth right and there's many others down through history who who were willing but but the question isn't who is willing who is worthy and what it says there in revelation is is that no one was found worthy no human in all of humankind was worthy not even any angel was worthy no one not abraham with his great faith Not Moses with his meekness. Not Samson with his great strength. Not Solomon with his wisdom. Not even John the Baptist, who Jesus said is the greatest man who ever lived. He wasn't even worthy to redeem back all of creation. Not Mary, who is Jesus' mom, right? What mom doesn't have that kind of authority? Not her. Not Peter. Not Paul. No one including John the Apostle. Nobody had the ability to deal with the curse that came because of sin, because nobody is without sin except Jesus. And so John weeps and weeps. In the original language, that phrase there literally means he sobbed out loud in abundance, right? The modern terminology in a modern translation would be like he was ugly crying, right? That would be the modern translation, snot, tears, like the whole deal, right? He was just weeping uncontrollably. Why? Because without anybody above the earth, in the earth, nobody willing to to have the ability and the worthiness to buy back the earth, what that meant is that the earth would then be left with the curse upon it forever. That it would forever be in the hands of Satan. And so in that moment, that brief moment, John saw the hopelessness of man's condition, the impossible situation of man's predicament there is nothing we can do to buy back that which we gave away nothing in us just like mary at the tomb we looked at last weekend when she initially saw the worst possible scenario and it says that she was crying overwhelmed in despair because there's no hope there's no plan there's nothing that could be done And if no redeemer could be found that was worthy and able to fulfill the redemption clause, the earth would forever be consigned to remain in the hands of Satan. Truly, truly a sad moment. But verse 5, it says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. At the point of John's deepest despair, at that moment of, of utter hopelessness, the hero of the story is introduced. And he's called "The Lion of the Tribe of Judah." Now, of course, that harkens back to Genesis chapter 49, as the, the um, prophecies of all the tribes, the children, the 12 tribes of Israel were, were doled out there and, and for Judah. There was a prophecy given that the future ruler of the world, God himself, their Messiah, the king predicted, would come from the tribe of Judah. And the insignia, each tribe had like an insignia or a picture that represented them, and guess what Judah's was? The lion. So this concept of the lion of the tribe of Judah, every every Jewish reader specifically in the day, and I believe many in the early church would go, oh, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's that coming future king and Messiah that was prophesied. Then he says the root of David. Again, this is in Jewish context. But in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, there was a prophecy that said, then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Well, Jesse was King David's dad. So from the stump of Jesse, a shoot will grow. That was King David. And then a branch from those roots will bear fruit. Well, the branch coming from the root of David is again prophecy that was speaking towards the coming king the the king that would come in the line of david but not just the king of the temporary kingdom the the king of the kingdom of god if you will the messiah and he's the one that's coming and so john is here weeping abundantly and the elder comes by and he's like bro don't cry you, you don't need to cry the, the messiah has conquered the one that was prophesied and foretold you know this you know this and, and he is worthy to open the scroll. He is worthy to break the seals. Why? Because he fulfilled the redemption clause. And so verse 6, he says, And I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. Now I believe as John is just sobbing uncontrollably there and just overwhelmed with the hopelessness of man's condition, the elder comes by and says, hey, don't cry. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the, the, the root of David, he's here. And I believe John looking up was expecting to see a mighty lion, right? Wouldn't you be expecting that? A mighty lion standing there, but instead he looks up and he sees a lamb right in the midst of the throne of God's glory. And again, this lamb is speaking of Jesus. Jesus the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. And it's not any ordinary lamb because he describes it in kind of strange ways. It has seven horns and seven eyes. And again, we got to remember that that concept of seven biblically is the idea of completeness, right? The seven letters to the churches. It was a complete message to the churches of all time. And and, and you, you have this idea of seven over and over. And so seven horns, what does that mean, right? That's a strange looking lamb. Well, Biblically, again, all of this is biblical symbolism, the horns were always uh, symbols of authority. Like the one who had the horn or carried the horns or you'd see horns, it was an idea of authority. And if you go through the Old Testament and just kind of do a survey of horns, you'll see that. It's always this picture of authority. And so seven horns is this picture here that the lamb that was slain has total and complete authority. And so it speaks symbolically of of the omnipotence that Jesus has, the omnipotence that only God possesses, again, speaking to Jesus being God. And then he has seven eyes. And again, it's like, if I was John, I'd be like, this is weird stuff, right? Really strange things, but seven eyes on this lamb. Again, seven being that whole idea of completeness and eyes being that thing of observation and perception and knowledge. It's the idea that he has complete knowledge and complete understanding, that he sees all, that he knows all. And so as the horns speak to the omnipotence that he has as God, the eyes speak to the omniscience he has as God, that he is all-knowing, which is a characteristic of God. And then he says, which are the seven spirits of God? In other translations, it says, which are the sevenfold spirit of God? And we talked about that back in the letters to the churches. But again, a reference back to Isaiah eleven two, which we see a picture there of the, the, the sevenfold spirit of God, these seven characteristics that represent the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, again, we see that there's this unity and this separation within the triune nature of God. And so again, speaking of the fullness of the Holy Spirit that rests on Jesus, but is also with Jesus, is one with Jesus, and is sent out by Jesus. And then of course it says sent out into all the earth, which then speaks to the omnipresence of God. And those are three characteristics of God, that he is omniscient, that he's all-knowing, and then he is everywhere at all times. But it says, John looked up and it says he saw this lamb and it was one like a slaughtered lamb. One like a slaughtered lamb. I don't know what image that conjures in your head. I don't know if you've ever seen a slaughtered lamb. Um, I don't like seeing animal, animals injured, right? It bothers me. Um, I don't even like you know putting out rat traps because I'm like, oh, the poor rat. You know. So that's just a problem I have, right? Um, but, but, but it's not a pretty image. It's not a pretty image that it, that it should conjure. Um, in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And he said that because at the time it was primarily Jewish people who were coming to find out what was going on that were coming to John's baptism. And so, under the Old Covenant, any Jew wanting their sins atoned for would have to bring a lamb to the temple. And then what they would do is they would lay their hands on the lamb and they would confess all their sins. I did this and I thought this and I said this. And they would confess all of their sins and then the priest would come along and slit the throat of the lamb. And the blood would drain out while you stood there watching. And the whole idea was that that, um, it was symbolic that your sins were transferred to this innocent lamb and then that lamb paid the price for them. That was the whole idea of that sacrifice. The, the guilt that you have being transferred to that innocent lamb and so it was slain to atone or to pay the price for your sins. And so the believing readers of this letter of revelation as they got it would think of Jesus here as that slaughtered lamb in heaven as he was slaughtered on the cross and through the torture and the brutality of what he did to pay the price to atone for the sins of all mankind. Now I want us all to think about for a second where John is as he is seeing this. John's in heaven. He's in the throne room of God. He just saw the brilliance of God in his his unity just emanating from the throne, right? And we talked about the, the, the white light and the carnelian light and we saw this picture of the Trinity in it as the lampstands were, were in front and, and all this idea of just God himself just emanating out from this throne, the rainbow surrounding it, the four living creatures around it and the elders in the sea of glass and just glory, 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 glory everywhere in this picture. But in the middle of all of it, it says in the midst of all of it, Right there in the midst of the elders, in the midst of the throne, in the midst of the glory, is Jesus Christ still bearing the marks of his crucifixion. In heaven, still bearing the marks of his crucifixion. In glory, still bearing the marks of his crucifixion. And That's crazy. You know, we know that when Jesus rose from the dead, he still had the marks of his crucifixion on his hands and his feet and his side and his brow. All those marks from what he went through on the cross were still there. We know that, right, because he appeared to Thomas, right? We usually say, Thomas the doubter, right? And He's like, I won't believe it until I can put my hands in the wounds, and Jesus is like, go for it, right? And then Thomas is like, my Lord and my God, right? I believe, right? And then Jesus in that same state tells us it ascended up into heaven, and here John sees him in heaven still with the scars of his sacrificial love which he will bear there in heaven before us, his people, for eternity. And why, why are those scars still there? I don't think they're there to make us feel guilty, right? Every time we look at Jesus in heaven, we're we'll like, oh, you're right, oh wow, right? It's not, it's not meant to, to, to make us feel guilty. There is no more condemnation, but I believe that he still bears those scars and he will bear them there in heaven forever so that we will be forever reminded that he redeemed us, that he paid the price, that he purchased us, that he did it all. Those scars will forever be a reminder that, 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 that he, he died on the cross for me. We will see those marks and we will know forever that we are home with the one who loves us, the one who redeemed us, that we are there with our Redeemer forever. And I think that's there because otherwise we might be tempted to think, wow, oh, I must have been a pretty good person. Look where I'm at. I don't know, after a few hundred thousand billion years in heaven, we might be tempted to be like, you know, it's pretty awesome here. I'm I'm glad I made it. I'm glad I went to church once a week. I'm glad I read my Bible. I'm glad I, right? And then we're going to look at our Lord and we're going to see those marks and we're going to be like, oh boy. I'm not here because of anything I did. I'm here because he loved me. I'm here because he loved me. And so, verse seven that slaughtered lamb that he sees, it says, he went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And for me, there again, I I see the unity of the Godhead simultaneously with their distinct personas, right? It's all one glory coming from the throne. And then we see a lamb. And it says he has seven eyes, but those seven eyes are the Holy Spirit. And now we see him going to the throne and taking the scroll out of the, the one who sits there, right? And so to me, it's just a picture of this triunity of God who's God himself. But then we see these distinct, distinct personas, the three in one, God as three. And then verse 8, it says, When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and a golden bowl filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, we're going to start there next week and dig more into what uh, worship in heaven looks like, but this is the greatest moment of all, the greatest moment where Jesus takes the title deed and reclaims and redeems that which we gave away in sin, where he steps in as our kinsman redeemer and buys back which belonged to us, but that which we gave away to Satan where he is the one who fulfilled the redemption clause. He is the one who paid the price, and there is rejoicing and praise and worship and all of that, and it's just joy unspeakable. Why? Because the kinsman redeemer, the goel, is going to take the property that was lost, is going to take the deed to that which was forfeited in the garden, to take it with its curse and redeem it all, to fulfill every single detail of that redemption clause of one. one what what was once his in a perfect creation why because he is worthy because he qualifies and he is the only one ever qualified to do so he meets all the qualifications of the kins and redeemer why well he's related to us why he became man he became a human he's a blood relative of mankind god who came and clothed himself as flesh was was born as a man and lived as a man and died man's death. He is fully God and fully man, but qualified to redeem it all. Not only is he related, but he is able. He was able to pay the price, which was death, the shedding of blood for the remission of sins, because it was only his blood that could do so, because he's the only perfect man that ever lived, the only one without sin. You remember on the cross, he said, it is finished, the price is paid. And then he was willing You know, Jesus wasn't forced to go to the cross for you and me. John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down myself. He says, I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up again. Jesus was a willing sacrifice, a willing redeemer. And you think about all of this and you go, why does God love us so much? Or personalize it because that's what I did. Why does God love me so much? I know me. I know the thoughts that go through my head. I know the curse of the sin that I live with. Why why does he love me so much? And I think it's for no other reason than that's just who he is. God is love. And we are freely justified. We are freely forgiven. We are freely redeemed because he was freely willing to do that. And so closing here, Matthew 13, there's a parable that was told by Jesus about the kingdom of heaven. And he says that the kingdom of heaven is, is, is like a, um, it's a buried treasure, right? He says there's a buried treasure that a man found and then he reburied it and in his joy he sells everything he has to go and buy the field to secure the treasure that is in the field. And that's a picture of, of God giving his everything God divesting himself of everything to come to this earth and to, to buy it, to pay the price because there was a great treasure in it. And I opened up with that a long time ago because, or earlier today because when we think about that treasure, well, guess what the treasure is? It's you and me. We are the treasure that was in the land that he gave up everything and came to this earth to live and to die and to purchase, to redeem we are the treasure. Next time you feel down, next time you feel worthless, next time the devil's speaking to your ear and saying, you're nothing and you should just die or you should just give up or you should just quit. Next time you feel like I'm a failure. Next time you feel like there's I can't do anything right and I have no value. Think about this. While you were still a sinner, you were so valuable to God that he would buy the entire earth just to get you that He would purchase the entire earth just to get you in the deal. He would redeem all of creation to make sure that you were redeemed in the process. Can you see why every creature and everything in creation erupts in jubilant praise when He takes that scroll? Because He did the impossible. To worship the Lamb who is worthy to take the scroll. That's why we're going to be worshiping Him for all of creation, or all of eternity. And so we're going to look more at that worship next week, but today we're going to close up here and, and look forward to celebrating the baptism of a couple of our family here. I know there was one specifically that signed up, but uh, if anybody else in this room, God is speaking to you today, and you've given your life to the Lord, right? You came to that place of, of, of accepting that free gift of salvation he gave you, and you've entered into that relationship where you've been saved and redeemed by God, but you've never taken that step to get publicly baptized, um, if you've never done that and you're here today and you're like, well, I didn't sign up, shucky darn. Nope. You can get baptized today, okay? Like uh, Pastor Rick was sharing earlier, we, we, we got some stuff in the back. We got t-shirts you could wear. You know, obviously you want to make sure everybody's you know appropriately dressed and whatnot, but <clears throat> don't miss this opportunity. And so, um, if you are getting baptized today, um, whether you signed up or not, okay, I want you to right now get up and come down the aisle and head towards the back so we could get ready for that baptism. If you are um, working, serving uh, volunteers that are helping with the baptism, please come forward. Yeah, this is awesome. Praise God. You know, this step is one of the most important steps in the life of a believer, you know. And, and to make that profession, it's, it's to tell the whole world, God changed my life. God changed my life, you know, and anybody else, if you want to get baptized today, if, you, if you've never taken this step, we, we got stuff in the back, we got towels, right? We got changing booths, we're all good, we're ready for you. But you know, God did such a mighty work in saving us. He did such an impossible work in saving us. He did such a life-changing work in saving us. And this whole act of baptism that we're going to participate in today is that moment where we make that profession. And some of you remember that day when you, you said, I've died to myself, right, going under the water. And I've been born again coming up out of the water. That's what it's all about. It's a wonderful time. Pastor Gary uh, used to give this uh, illustration and, and I think it's so appropriate considering what we looked at today. is prior to Christ. Satan is your landlord, and he always comes knocking on the door, and he says, you owe me. You have to. You're going to sin. You're going to do this. You're going you're to serve me with your life, and so you're going to be involved in the drugs, and you're going to have the, the hateful relationships, and you're going to have the promiscuity, and you're going to have all that. You serve me because I'm your landlord, and then the day we say, Jesus, please forgive me. I believe you are God come into my life. We get a new landlord. We get a new landlord. And then the next time Satan comes knocking on that door to say, hey, you need to serve me, it's like, bro, you're not my landlord anymore. Get out of here. I don't owe you anything. And that's the... Picture of what we're gonna be celebrating here in baptism. And so I'm so uh, excited to be celebrating it with you. I'm gonna go back and get changed and get ready for that. Uh, The worship team is gonna be leading us in worship and uh, just um, pray for those getting baptized, guys. And and again, the quick instructions, if you're like in the path of the cameras, please don't stand up right here, okay? It'll just block the camera and I know there's people online watching that wanna see their loved ones get baptized too. But if you're back there somewhere and you wanna stand and whatever, feel free, just, just not in the line of the cameras, okay? All right, let's pray, and then uh, we'll get started. Lord, we're so grateful to you. We're so thankful, God, to you for redeeming us. Lord, being our kinsman redeemer. Yeah, because, Lord, we, we gave away what you gave to us. We traded it for sin. And then yet, Lord, when we came back to try and redeem it, we found out there was nothing we could do. We, we were incapable we may have been willing, but we definitely weren't able. And so, God, you had to step in in our place to pay the price of redemption, Lord. To buy back everything that, that, that we gave away, that you would be able to cleanse all of creation of the curse, cleanse us of the curse, set us free, make us born again, Lord. And we're so grateful for that. And, God, today we're here to celebrate with uh, some brothers and sisters here, Lord. Um, that are confessing that that reality in their life lord as they get baptized and, and lord it is an honor and a privilege to be able to celebrate that with them as their family in christ god so lord we pray that you would just bless this time that you'd bless our lives and you'd help us lord to continue every day to live to live in a way that that just glorifies your name lord we know we're not perfect and that's why we're so thankful for your redemption but help us lord to the power of your holy spirit to choose obedience to you in all things, God, to live as redeemed people, free from the stain of sin, in the glory and the power of God. We love you so much and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's worship, guys.